So all world religions have their sacred writings, and they convey spiritual truths, and they establish communal identity, and they provide uh, mystical or sacred experiences. Yet sometimes sacred writings can be misused, and here's what I mean. When a religion uses their sacred writings, is it to begin a discussion on the vital topics of life, or is it to end the discussion? Are sacred writings a way forward, or do they keep us trapped in the past? Do religions deify their sacred writings as an end in and of themselves, or are their sacred writings signposts that point the way forward? Now, when we think about sacred writings, whether it is from Judaism or Christianity or Islam or Confucianism or Hinduism or Buddhism, what we find is that they all contain stories, they all contain principles to live by, and sometimes these stories actually shape the worldview of those who are adherents to that religion, and that is true in Christianity as well. And we become very familiar with those stories. In fact, if you grew up in a church, you probably heard through Sunday school all kinds of different stories that come out of the scriptures. And these stories often are then handed down to children through children's ministries. I want you to think about just one as an example for a moment. The story of Noah and the ark. I think all of us are familiar with the idea of Noah and the ark that he built, and the animals that went two by two onto the boat to escape the coming flood. And we like the imagery of that. I mean, some people will uh, create a nursery around the theme with the ark and the rainbow and the cute little panda bears with ribbons in their hair and a giraffe and a lion and a monkey. And you go, oh, isn't that cute? However, However, even though we might take that story and turn it into some type of a theme for a Sunday school classroom or a nursery, is that really what that story is all about? Is it that cute little picture that we see here on the TV? It's not. Actually, that story of Noah and the ark is probably filled with a lot of tension that's reflected in the movie Noah. I don't know if you've seen the movie with Russell Crowe, Noah. That's a more accurate description in terms of the tension and the conundrum of a man that is to be the ongoing work of God in the world while God destroys the rest of the world. And if you've seen that movie, you will know that the moral conundrum of Russell Crowe is, why am I chosen and how can we let all these other people die? When you think about the story of Noah and the ark, the reason it's even in the Bible is because it says in the book of Genesis that the earth was filled with so much violence 
that God is going to start all over again. But the moral conundrum in the story is God is judging humanity for violence on earth and then he uses violence to start all over again. Do you feel the tension there? God is going to use a judgment that's going to wipe out everyone on the planet, all the animals, all the babies, all the boys, all the girls, and start just with one family. See, when you wrestle with sacred text, you wrestle sometimes with moral complexities, if you take it seriously, and you don't just kind of make it a storybook. So, Sacred writings do some things in us and through us and shape us, sometimes for the good, sometimes not so good. To say that the Bible is an important doctrine is an understatement. People fight over the meaning of the Bible all the time. The late theologian Marcus Borg said this correctly, conflict about how to see and read the Bible is the single greatest issue dividing Christians in North America today. You see, when you have sacred text, the hard thing is to come to a conclusion of what that text means. Because in order to come up with meaning for a sacred text, you have to do some interpretation, don't you? And it's not just words on a page that's crystal clear. You bring who you are to the text. You bring your experiences and your hurts and your hang-ups to the text. And it's a lens through which you read the text and interpret the text. This is the toughest question right here. What is the Bible? And what are we to do with it? So every week I take this text and I open to a passage and I read it and I try to interpret it and I try to understand what it's trying to say for us in our day and age. Some things get in the way though. We have certain misconceptions about what this book is. And that's what I want to talk to you about in the rest of the time I have with you this morning Because I think in order to get the most out of what this text is giving to us, we need to kind of reframe the way we use the Bible. And here's what I want to do. There are four misconceptions that most people have about the Bible. And I'm not going to take too long on these, but I think they're critically important. Misconception number one, the Bible's a book. Misconception number two, the Bible is inerrant because it's inspired. Misconception number three is there's one biblical perspective on any given topic. And number four, all parts of the Bible are equally authoritative. So let's break that down a little bit and let's see what these misconceptions are. Misconception number one, the Bible is a book. And I understand that because it's bound and it has a bookmark in it usually, that we call it a book. But it's not really a book. The word Bible comes from a Greek word, biblos, which means books, plural, okay? Inside this one volume is not one book, but you have 66 books inside this volume. So it's more a library than it is a book. 
the books that we find in the Bible are not like chapter divisions in a book that you read and has a table of contents. They are separate sacred writings that have been held by different communities over the years. The Old Testament held these books or scrolls as sacred, and the Jewish community preserved them and copied them so that their teachings would continue. The New Testament is written in Greek, not Hebrew, and it was collected by the early church, and these books were copied onto scrolls, and as they are handed down from generation to generation, there were some disagreements on which books belong within this library. So, in the Old Testament, you have 39 scrolls or sacred writings. In the New Testament, you have 27. However, if you were to take a Catholic Bible and you were to look in the middle of the Catholic Bible, there are other books that are added to this collection called the Apocrypha. And these were books that were usually written between the Old and the New Testament when the Jewish people were fighting for independence. And these books then have increased the number of the library within a Catholic Bible. Other people over the centuries have taken books that have been preserved out of the Bible because they feel that it is dishonoring to God, and so they whittle it down. Other books that are called uh, pseudepigrapha, big word, but it basically means that we're not sure who the author is, but the Gospel of Thomas and different books like that that aren't included in this collection are also ancient scriptures uh, that were handed down and copied over a course of about 1,000 years. Now, because it's multiple scrolls or sacred writings, it has multiple authors. And because it has multiple authors, it has multiple geographical and geopolitical settings. In other words, this one book doesn't have one context. It has dozens and dozens of different contexts because it goes back, way, way back into the Old Testament and through the New Testament. And what we find is there's no single context that can be used for the whole Bible. That's why you have to understand a scroll or a sacred writing within its time and its setting in order to get at what the author is trying to accomplish. Now, what's interesting is that these scrolls are in conversation with each other because something that was written earlier has been changed sometimes with a different perspective later. You remember Jesus said on one occasion, you have heard it said, but I say to you. You read the text this way, but I say to you. You have heard it said, you shall not murder, but I say, who is ever angry with their brother has already kind of committed uh, that sin in his heart. Does that make sense to everybody? So there is a conversation that's going on, and there is continual updated interpretation. All I'm trying to say in this first point is the Bible has many different voices that speak without singularity. And this multivocal sacred writings needs to be wrestled with in its own time, in its own place, before we can do this. 
This is a simplified way of people and how they use the Bible. I'm going to read this today. Oh, gosh. My Bible just landed in the book of Lamentations. That's not what I wanted. How to lament and grieve over the destruction of Jerusalem. Okay. So, first misconception, the Bible's a book. No, it's a library. Number two. The Bible is inerrant because it's inspired. So we read one text this morning that all Scripture is inspired or God-breathed, and it is useful for teaching and training and correction and those type of things. But here's what has often happened in churches. To understand that the Bible is inspired, churches have said it's also inerrant. It doesn't make any mistakes. And what happens is this often becomes a litmus test for many churches. Do you believe the Bible's inspired? Yes, I do. Do you believe that the Bible has no errors in it whatsoever? No, I don't. Oh, you heretic. Well, how can the Bible be uh, without error when our context has changed. We know more about astronomy. We know more about science. We know more about so many things that the people back in that context never, ever, ever could even imagine. So some of the statements that they make reflected what they believed at that time. Does that make sense? But we have found out different through scientific discovery and so forth. Now, what usually happens is people become quite fearful. Well, if the Bible's not inspired, then how can I trust it? Believe me, the Bible and other sacred writings have survived because people have found it useful and helpful to them. Otherwise, it would have died in the dustbin of centuries past. What we find is that people sometimes try to take the Bible literally rather than seriously. Let me say that again. People try to take the Bible literally rather than seriously. That's a low view of Scripture. The Bible is without error. Well, not even the translators who have translated from Hebrew and Greek into English recognize that there are differences. If you have a Bible and you were to turn open to John chapter 8, the story of the woman that's caught in adultery, and you were to look at the bottom of the text there, it would say, this story is not found in the earliest manuscripts. It's not even there. That's why it's italicized. It was added later in some later manuscripts. So the end of the Gospel of Mark about the resurrection of Jesus is another one that's italicized. That story wasn't in the original manuscripts. A high view of Scripture is to understand that it is something that is inspirational. It is something that gives to us wisdom and insight, and it is something that allows us to live a moral and godly and loving life toward other people. But you've got to understand that it is always in process. There is no such thing that a Bible flew down from heaven, bound in leather, engraved with your name on it, with a ribbon in it. That's not the way the, way the Bible came together. And the idea that there's this pristine 
without error uh, source is mistaken. So there was, in 1978, some evangelicals that came together and they wrote a statement on biblical inerrancy and they voted on this and this is what they wrote. The Bible alone and the Bible in its entirety is the Word of God written and is therefore inerrant in the autographs. Now what they mean by the autographs is the original scrolls, the one that Paul wrote, okay, the one that James wrote. Here's the problem. We don't have the original autographs. We don't have the original scrolls of anything. I don't care if you're looking at Caesar's Gallic Wars. So you take these scrolls and you compare them through a real, real sophisticated science uh, called textual criticism to try to figure out what was in that original scroll. So here's the problem. The idea of a pristine original autograph, originally straightforward and communicated from God to dutiful writers that copied it word for word, it's impossible to recover. We don't know it. All we can do is understand that no one has these originals, and because we're doing our best to piece together these sacred writings. And so, what we're trying to understand here is the Bible is inspired. It is inspirational. God has His influence upon it. He has His influence upon the authors of it. However, at times they don't know certain things, but they write according to their own time, place, and context. And we don't know what the originals are, and, and there have to be scholars that try to work and work and work to get back to the original. And that's why you have dozens and dozens and dozens of, uh, of translations of the Bible. Something new is discovered in archaeology, and it might change the viewpoint of what was in the original. So hopefully that is helpful. And yet a lot of times people get real amped up about this. I believe that the Bible is without error because it says it's without error. It never says that. Actually, the very premise of that logic looks like this. When someone says the Bible is true because it says so in the Bible, it's like plugging <laughs> an electrical cord back into its own uh, electrical uh, source. Well, actually, there's, there's no electrical source there. It's just plugging itself back into itself. Do I believe that the Bible is inspired? Absolutely, I do. It's a wonderful text. God has had his influence upon this text. And I believe within it there are the words of wisdom and grace. But to deify it, a lot of churches believe in Father, Son, and Holy Bible as part of the Trinity rather than Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is still leading and guiding and, and prompting us and guiding us. That's part of what the promise of Jesus was when he promised the giving of the Holy Spirit. Okay, number three. There's one biblical perspective on any given topic. So here's a, a phrase that uh, a lot of churches like to uh, throw around. It's biblical. Okay, so a topic comes up, and it says, 
Here's the biblical viewpoint, singular. Here's the biblical viewpoint on this topic. Most people that say something like that don't understand that the Bible has multi-voices. Let me show you what I mean. So you've heard it said, a biblical marriage, right? This is one of those cultural conflict type things. Marriage is between one man and one woman for one lifetime. Wonderful. But don't call it biblical. If you look up here, all of these things are mentioned as marriage in the Bible. Well, you have a man and a woman going back to Genesis chapter 2. But you have a man, his wife, and his wife's concubines as well that is described as marriage. Individuals like Abraham, and the one that really stands out is Solomon. Solomon had 300 concubines, 700 wives, 1,000 women. How, okay, how do you keep that many women happy? Huh? A thousand women? Come on, really, Solomon? Why? Because all of those marriages were for political purposes. Solomon was reigning over Israel, and he would marry the daughter of a king uh, that is adjacent to his kingdom so that there are these political ties. Does that make sense? Okay. So, but it's in the Bible, all right? So when we criticize Mormonism that, oh man, polygamy, you know, they, they marry more than one wife. Well, they have scriptures for that. I just want you to know, okay? Or how about this one? A man, a woman, and a woman's property. In other words, a man could acquire his wife's property, which includes her slaves. So the slaves that are part of the, her family come with her into the marriage. How about a man and his brother's widow? So a man has a brother, and his brother dies. And this man is to marry his sister-in-law and is commanded in the Scripture to uh, impregnate, impregnate her so she can have children. That's a biblical marriage. Okay, One, more, uh, one or two more. Now this one is really upsetting. So when a man rapes a woman... He is then told in Deuteronomy 22 that she is to become his wife and he's to pay off the father of the woman uh, because now she ha she's become a spoiled treasure, okay? She's no longer a virgin type thing. And then how about a male soldier is allowed to take women as prisoners of war as part of their marriage. All of these are biblical representations of marriage. Is it the ideal? No. None of those are the ideal. I guess the ideal is still what we hold in our heart. When I stood up yesterday, I did a, a wedding down at the Old Stone Church, and a man and a woman stood before me and exchanged vows that they're going to love each other and they're going to help each other and they're going to find purpose with each other in the course of our life. That's a beautiful picture. But you can't go back and say that's the only picture that's in the Bible. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay, that's fine. 
That's why this whole issue where there is cultural conflict about um, same-sex uh, uh, ceremonies and weddings is ridiculous because it becomes this cultural thing that is used for control rather than understanding that, that's, that the Bible is filled with a variety of different things that's called marriage. However, what's the ideal? What is the best way forward when two men or two women or a man and a woman love each other and they want to live their life together and they want to serve each other in the course of life? That's a beautiful thing. Come on, let's understand that and let's move forward and, and let's stop being trapped by a text that was written thousands of years ago. Finally, number four, all the parts of the Bible are equally authoritative. This is easy. The dietary laws that you find in the Old Testament, you know, some of the fish that you like to eat but were forbidden in the book of Leviticus, shellfish and some different things like that, those things were given for a particular reason in a particular time. To say that you can't eat shrimp because it's in the Bible is to misunderstand what was going on in the Old Testament, okay? So, is that equally authoritative as you shall not murder? No. The greater principle that benefits humanity is to love one another, not kill one another. Are you, you see what I'm saying? So, it, it's important to understand, my brothers and sisters, that because the Bible did not fall out of the sky into our laps, it is a process, and because it's a process, we need to constantly be reframing our understanding of the text, and we need to understand that if you want to prove something from the Bible, you can do it. If you wanted to prove something from the Bible, you could prove that slavery is still to be in existence today, because Old Testament and New Testament never, ever says to get rid of slavery. Did you know that? But in the process of human development, we understand that all men and women are created equal. And we understand that it is wrong for one person to control and use and abuse another person. So they, we see a process. There's much better treatment of slaves under the writings of Paul than in the Old Testament. But it doesn't stop there. So what I'm trying to just say to you here today is this, is all parts of the Bible are not equally authoritative. Eat your fish. It's okay. Eat your pork. It's okay. Wear uh, material that has a mixture of different types of material that was forbidden in the book of Leviticus. It's okay to wear polyester. Well, Okay, let's rewind that. Let's, it depends on how it looks, right? <laughs> in other words, understand that everything that's in the text is not meant to be applied for our day and age. If you want to read a funny book, uh, there is a, an author, uh, 
Rachel Held Evans that wrote a book called The Year of Biblical Womanhood, and she tried to literally keep all the commandments that was given to women, and she uh, gave this journal of this year of trying to keep all these uh, commandments that, you know, when she had her menstrual cycle, she had to go out, and she was sitting on the roof because she's not allowed to be around other people in the community. She was, she got out on the street because you were to uh, honor your husband at the, the gate and was holding uh, up a sign for all the cars to see about how great her husband was and stuff. It, it's pretty funny stuff. It really is. But it also shows the absolute lunacy of saying this is equally applied today as it was back then. Okay, so here's what I want to do. As we close here this morning, um, this book, this library, is useful, it says, for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And that's why God gave it to us, to let it be useful for me to change my stupid attitudes, to change my heart from being hateful to loving, from being selfish to being unselfish, things like that. And that's where the psalmist that says the Bible is a light unto our feet and a light unto our path. That's where it is important to keep all of this in mind. I ran across this quote from Paul Knitter. He says, the more deeply one sinks into one's own religious truth, the more broadly one can appreciate and learn from other truths. You see, all other sacred texts in other world religions went through the same process as well as we have within Christianity. You know, until Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. read Gandhi, he said he did not clearly see the principle of nonviolence that Jesus taught. But when he read about Gandhi living a life of nonviolence, he began to understand better the principle of Jesus of turning the other cheek and going the extra mile. Because here's one thing world religions do have in common. They are meant to be helpful and hopeful to the communities that they were written for. And if we can understand that, then what we can understand is that our own ancestors learned and grew over time that the process of changing perspectives when better information or inspiration became available is what faith looks like. Faith is always on the move. It is moving forward. It is not stuck in the past. So stand with me as we close, and let me give to you this promise as we close our service today. John 8, 12. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. May you have the light of life that comes from the Scriptures. May you have the light of life that comes from the insight of wisdom through friends and relatives. May you have the light of life when you feel the promptings of the Holy Spirit that's telling you something inside that you really needed at a moment in time. Keep your heart, keep your mind, and keep your spirit open. Amen. Thank you so much. I hope you have a great week, everyone. See you soon.